Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to take two chapters tonight because they are a single message. And that message is really establishing the coming uh, Messiah. And, And as we take these two chapters together, and as these details unfold before us, this begins a string of what is the largest body of messianic prophecy in the entire Bible. There is more information about the coming Messiah uh, contained in the next four chapters than exists in all of the rest of the Bible as far as specificity. In other words, very specific things uh, that Messiah would be and do and his government and all of the treatment that he would have on the cross. And so um, really these next two chapters set the majority of the stage showing us the the coming one, the one who is going to provide for the salvation of national Israel. And so I pray uh, that as we meet on what the Jewish people would uh, be celebrating tonight is the first day of Hanukkah, so they'll have eight days of uh, lighting their Hanukkah menorah uh, and a candle for each night celebrating uh, the rededication of the second temple under Judas Maccabees when Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled it and slaughtered a pig on the altar and the Jewish people took it back and they were finally able to light this giant menorah that stood inside of the holy place. They considered that to be a light to the world. Little did they know that Jesus would eventually stand in that same place and say, actually, no, I am the light of the world. And so there's a beautiful picture in it, even though it's not directly a Christmas celebration. Uh, It's a celebration of um, spinning some dreidels, which are a little top that have Hebrew letters on either side of them and eating jelly-filled donuts, and and it's a kind of a fun time. Uh, But for us, we do celebrate the light of the world that's come. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, how we desire for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in these days. Lord, we've been tested as a people and tried as a people, and Lord, we uh, have been given such great gifts in in this country of peace and, Lord, prosperity. Uh, And we pray that as we approach this season that we celebrate your birth, Jesus, that you'd speak to your people tonight, encourage us and lift us up, Because the Redeemer has now come, the one that's prophesied of in these two chapters is you, Jesus, and you touched down on this earth in a manger 2,000 years ago, would walk on this earth for 32 and a half years and give your life, Lord, as a ransom for our sin. And so we celebrate you, the light of the world tonight, ask that your word would be alive to us in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Isaiah 49, listen, O coastlands, to me. And you might notice, if you have a new King James, that me is capitalized there. And that's done for your benefit in English. Helps you draw attention to who's being spoken of. And normally, 
uh, when there's a personal pronoun and you see it capitalized, it should point you towards it's, it's some person of the Trinity. And we're going to find out that it can only be one person of the Trinity because we're told that whoever this person is, also named in the second part of this verse, uh, also called me, but called me by the Lord, that me has to be somebody other than the Lord and that me has to be somebody who's actually born. So this is very clearly Jesus. Watch this. Take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called again me from the womb. Which member of the Trinity was called forth from the womb? Uh, That would be Jesus. So it's very clear that the one that's being spoken of here is actually the Lord or to the Jewish people, Messiah. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So there's, notice that he is capitalized, as is my. And, and so this is obviously dual persons who both, in this case, uh, are a member of the Godhead, the Trinity. For he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He's made me like a polished shaft. And in his quiver, he has hidden me. And so we, we get this opening volley of, of who this person actually is. It's going to go on to be further called the servant. And so that will be the main name that we have for the Messiah uh, throughout the remainder of, of, of our time here in the book of Isaiah. But you might notice something here. There's some very strong similarities some other, to some other passages that probably you're familiar with. Most of you have heard of Psalm 22, and if you haven't, you probably have and don't know that you have. That's a famous psalm that uh, the Lord Jesus actually is, is quoted in that particular psalm as speaking, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So it's messianic. But part of the 22nd Psalm, verses 9 and 10, says this, but you are the one who took me out of the womb. So it's a very similar context. You made me hope. When I was on my mother's breast and I was cast out from the womb, for you are my God from my mother's womb. And so, again, a very clear picture of the Trinity at work in two different people. There's an equivalence that we see uh, actually here in verse 1 and 2, where he has made my mouth sharp like a sword. Now, probably some of you uh, remember that Jesus, when he finally returns to earth, when he comes for a second time, uh, what's coming out of his mouth? It's a sharp, two-edged sword, isn't it? Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 declares that to us. And so it's very clear that Isaiah the prophet is getting a picture of the Lord Jesus, and he's speaking forth to the Jewish people that there is someone other than just some military ruler that's going to come, because a military ruler wouldn't have a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. People have said, well, this is just showing great diplomatic prowess or whatever. But this name really truly can only be expressed in the one that we know as Jesus and that the Jewish people were looking for that they would call Messiah. So Israel uh, is going to be listed here as as the one whom this servant will actually speak to. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel. So remember, uh, just a couple of chapters ago, we saw that Israel is the servant of the Lord and that Jesus is the servant of Israel. Both things are true. And so as you look at this, um, this is a picture of what Israel was supposed to be and what Israel didn't do initially. In other words, when Jesus came, he came to the Jewish people. He came to the Jew first and then the Gentile, but they didn't receive him. 
And so this is, again, a picture of whom the Lord would come to, in whom I, notice it says, will, future tense, I will be glorified. Eventually, the Jewish people are going to fully glorify the Lord. Now, throughout time, as individual Jewish people, remember all of the apostles, essentially, save one, were Jewish. And and so the Jewish people have been glorifying the Lord throughout history, one at a time, just like every individual who we would call a Gentile, uh, who became a believer, would also glorify the Lord. But there will come a time when Israel itself, in other words, national Israel, as a people group, where, where we, would, we would express things like America uh, was at its founding a pre- predominantly Christian nation. There's going to be a time when Israel is going to be a Christian nation. Right now, they're a secular nation that primarily is Jewish in tradition, some of them religious Jews, but mostly it, it is really just their heritage or celebrating a commonality of their birthright more than they do actually Judaism as a religion. Most Jewish people are, are if you will, less than conservative. They, they, by and large, if they believe at all, believe loosely in some form of Judaism. There's a whole center that's orthodox that are highly uh, structured and, and continue to worship and try and, they're trying to build the temple again on the Temple Mount even uh, as we speak. But then he said, I've labored in vain, verse 4. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain, and yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Do you remember in John's gospel that begins in the first chapter that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not? The Messiah initially labored in vain. He came to his own people, but his own people didn't receive him. So this is a reference to the early ministry of Jesus. And so as you see this, he spent his strength for nothing. Do you remember as Jesus came down the Temple Mount? Do you remember when he got part way down and he stood and looked at the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives? Do you remember what he said? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, those sent to her. I would gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. So this is a picture looking forward in time some 700 years from when these words uh, were spoken to Isaiah the prophet. They rejected him. They despised him. He was coming, but he came at least as far as the majority of the Jewish people were concerned. Primarily, he came in vain. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And again, this can only be one member of the Godhead because God is not created. He he wasn't born, amen? We already saw in chapter 9 and in verse 6, and we'll look at it again in our Christmas messages, that he was the child that was born and the son that was given, amen? So Jesus was actually born. He happened to be born like no other child was ever born. He was born... Uh, without a sin nature because he was born of a virgin and Joseph was not his father. And so he's born, Scripture says, of the Holy Spirit. So he was birthed of the Holy Spirit, but he was carried to full term as a regular baby. He was born as a babe in a manger. 
It's hard to imagine, but Jesus needed diapers. Amen? Uh, it's good to think on those things because in every way, shape, or form, he was as we are and yet without sin. He was formed. He was born. All these things that are said here to be his servant, to be God's servant. To bring Jacob back to him. Jacob is the name of Israel before the name change. Amen? So whenever you see Jacob, you, you can just assign it to the 12 tribes because he's the progenitor. From him came all of the 12 tribes. And so Jacob was supposed to be brought back by whom? The servant. So that Israel is gathered to him. The only way that Israel can be gathered to God is the same way all people are gathered to God, and that's coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Lord. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And again, I, I want to draw your attention. I'll do this several times over the next four or five chapters. Imagine that when these words were written, if you were to have grabbed an English Bible uh, back during the time of Wycliffe or perhaps around the Reformation, say 500 years ago, and, and you pulled out an English Bible, there would be no text, no actual manuscript ev evidence or what we would call an autograph, an actual copy of something that came from Isaiah the prophet. In fact, there wouldn't be a copy of any of the Old Testament books that was any more than about a thousand years old at that time. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and finally dated, inside of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six, nearly complete, and five complete scrolls of the book of Isaiah. So there are five copies that have been dated, and they're very accurate when you're talking about dating things within the last 2,000 years, dated to about 212 BC. So we have copies of the book of Isaiah that are at least 230 years older than when Christ was born. So we have a copy of this book that was on this earth 230 years before Jesus put his feet to the dirt. And when you think of that, then you can't get these words and go, oh, they altered the text. You see, up until that time, people believed there were two Isaiahs because this was so accurate that someone must have filled in all the details after looking at the New Testament. They said, here's what needs to be in the book of Isaiah. And so they thought that all this information was filled in. But thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that these are the very words of Isaiah the prophet, and we had them before Jesus was born. So that makes you reading them a, a very special mental ability because you can look at these words, and they're correctly translated in English, and go, God told the Jewish people those things before Jesus set his feet on this earth. And because he was one of the favorite prophets, the favorite prophet of the Apostle Paul, Paul quotes Isaiah more than any other Old Testament prophet, we know that they understood these passages, that there was some understanding. So Jesus 
in his incarnation was to bring Jacob or Israel back to Father God to restore Israel in that sense. Verse 6, indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Now I want you to read that correctly. It, It says it correctly. It is too small a thing. Why is it too small a thing? Because the Jewish people make up a very, very, very tiny piece of humanity. The Jewish people today make up less than one-tenth of one percent of all of the people on the face of the earth. So notice what Isaiah the prophet writes. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. Do you see it? What did Jesus do? This passage describes perfectly what happened in the early life of Jesus before Jesus ever came. I'm giving you to Jacob. Jacob doesn't want you. It's too small a thing that I would just send Jesus just for the Jewish people, so I'm also going to give you as a light unto the Gentiles. That would be everyone else on planet Earth. Amen? You ought to be saying amen about right now because you're a Gentile, most of you. Okay? I'll give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation, check this, to the ends of the earth. In other words, there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. That he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. You see, this is a New Testament truth contained in the Old Testament. Written well before Jesus ever stepped onto this earth. You see, through Messiah, the Gentiles who were alienated, we were once at enmity with God. The Apostle Paul, his whole story for us as Gentiles, we, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made alive, right? How did he do that? He shined light into our lives because men love darkness. And so the light of the world came. We see the Messiah's work here on earth in verses 7 to 15. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One. Now remember, this Redeemer has to be born. He needs to be of the matrix of his mother's womb. But he also has to be, in some way, shape, or form, God. And God has to be related to him because they talk in, in in a single voice. Remember when Jesus said, I and my Father are one? That's the truth that's here. The Redeemer of of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises. Jesus was despised and afflicted, wasn't he? He was cast out. It was so bad that he wasn't even received in his own home. He had no place to lay his head. To him, the the nation of whores. Remember what the Pharisees have been doing as we've journeyed through Luke's gospel? What have the most religious Jewish people been doing in the New Testament as we've gone through Luke's gospel? They've been hounding relentlessly Jesus, right? That was all prophesied. The nation is going to abhor him. To the servant of the rulers, the kings shall see and arise and princes shall also worship. Remember who the magi were? They were princes. They were kings of the east. 
because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, he has chosen you. So it goes back to saying, Father God, remember God had told them, this is who I am. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am that I am. I am Yahweh, Lord of hosts. And so we can see the work of the Lord across all of humanity in these verses. You know, sometimes I think people get the idea because the gospel is, is several things. First, it's simple. It's not complex at all. Man mucks it up a lot, but the gospel is very simple as far as the Bible is concerned. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's, that, it's really that simple. In order to do that, you have to know who Jesus is. He's God's own son. His only son came to this earth, lived a sinless life. Died on Calvary's cross, buried in the grave, raised three days later. Died as a propitiation for our sin. He paid the price for my sin. That's the simplicity of it. But in the same way, the gospel is also unbelievably narrow. There isn't any other way. There's no competing truth, in other words. There isn't something else that's going on. It's like, well, you know, if I just kind of believed in, you know, Muhammad Buddhist or something, you know, whatever, you come up with your own thing. No, Jesus said, I'm actually the only way. So on one hand, very simple, completely is open to everyone, as it says here, the children of Israel and the whole Gentile world. It's everybody. But there's only one Jesus. There's only one Lord. And you need to believe in him. For thus says the Lord, verse 8, in acceptable time I've heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. And I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to, the restore, to restore the earth. The only thing that can save anyone is Jesus. He's the only true restorer of the earth. Now we can fix stuff. We can make things better. We can make it last longer. We got... Finally, the vaccine was approved today, and I believe it's going to be, start to be given out on Monday. But you know what? Once all that happens, people are still going to die. And I'm not making light of it because it's a very disastrous situation currently. They're projecting that we're going to have 3,000 people a day or more die for the next 60 days. So if you do some quick math, that's about 200,000 people are going to die before the end of January. That's how serious this thing is. But you know what? There's a much more serious thing going on in mankind. And that's when you take your last breath, if you have not been born again a second time, then you're going to face a second death, and that one is way worse than dying of COVID or cancer or anything else. That's what Jesus came to fix. Jesus did not come to clean up this world. He didn't. There is not a single passage in the entire Bible that teaches that Jesus came to transform society. He came to transform men's hearts one at a time and to lead them into eternal life. And in doing so, individuals will be changed and thereby cultures will be altered. But Jesus never taught about transforming society because society itself, apart from Christ, is unredeemable. It can't be redeemed. It belongs to this earth. 
and it can't go to heaven. Only that which belongs to Christ can go to heaven. And so Jesus is making a differentiation here between the value of people and the value of buildings and governments and things of that nature. Because the restoring of the earth means you have to have a covenant with the hearts of the people. It doesn't do a bit of good to save a building. It doesn't do a bit of good to save a city if the people that are in it that are, that are eternal perish. That's why Jesus said, what profits it a man if he gained the entire world but loses his soul? The Bible is about eternal things. It touches temporal things. But the plan of salvation is for people. It's not for stuff. It's not for systems of government. It's not for politics or any of those things. To restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. That you may say to prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourself. They shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be all the delight of the heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy is on them and will lead them even by the springs of water. He will guide them. This is something that can only happen if you take care of all the problems. Amen? This this isn't a temporal thing. I don't know if you notice this or not. You can't just go shopping and fill your house one time with groceries. You have to kind of keep going back to Vons because you run out of food. You have to repair the house that you live in. You may have a beautiful, you might have a brand new house right now. You may have a brand new car right now. You could have all kinds of new things, but those things are going to break down. The second law of thermodynamics is going to be absolutely in play in your life for the rest of your days. Things will tend towards distance towards disorder and decay. Entropy is going to take over. You you can't fix that. You can't stop that. But what you can do is save the soul, which is eternal, so that it ends up in heaven. This earth is passing away. That's what the Bible plainly says. So in that sense, God's let's make sure we have the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is the souls of human beings. That's the main thing. All the rest of those things, if we can cure some hunger, great thing. We try and do that. If we can help people who don't have homes, awesome thing. We want to try and do that, and we do. But when we give people food, they're going to be hungry again. When we build them a house, that house is going to age and fall apart. If we save them with drugs, they're still going to die. Do you understand? It's so important to have an eternal perspective on these things because if you don't, you start worrying about the temporal instead of the eternal. The church has been called to worry about the eternal first. The temporal will take care of itself. I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. Surely those shall come from afar. And look, those are from the north and the west. Those from the land of Sinim. And that's interesting because that literally is the land to the east of the Holy Lands, which if you go far enough east, you're going to bump into one place and one place only, and that would be China. So this is speaking of going all the way to the east coast uh, of, of what would be the Asian continent. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. 
my Lord has forgotten me. So notice this message is going out to the Gentiles, is going out to the whole world, is going all the way to the east. But from the Jewish people's perspective, the Lord's forgotten us. Interesting when you study the history of the Jewish people. Because that is exactly the message that you still get to this day. Uh, we're not so sure. We don't know where the Lord was during the Holocaust. Not quite sure why that happened. But ultimately, God's going to gather them, and he did. He's going to gather together his covenant people, and he's going to bring them into a land, and we'll discuss that. We move along a little bit here. But the truth is, the diaspora happened. There's almost as many Jewish people living here in the United States as there are in Israel right now. It's very close. There's about 9 million there. There's about 7 million in the United States. At one point in time, the largest group of Jewish people actually lived in Europe. We know them as Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews, the European Jews. Poland, Germany, Russia. And then the Holocaust. The Lord allowed that to happen. As hard as that is to imagine. And he still has a plan to redeem the Jewish people. He has not forgotten his covenant people. Psalm 137 is actually a psalm that most Bible scholars believe was written during the Babylonian captivity. And it says there in verses 1 through 4, when we were in Babylon, we sat by the rivers and we wept and remembered Zion. And if you read that, that psalm, you'll, you'll see this, this incredible picture of how they longed for Zion. Zion is the city of God. And it's very specifically the city of David. And so when you say Zion, you can kind of insert city of David, and it's also located in what we call today Jerusalem, but it's really the southern part below the Temple Mount. That's actually David's city. That's where Zion was. David wrote many of his psalms while he was in the city of Zion, while he sat there with his harp out on his balcony overlooking the Cadron stream, looking south towards the hills where he could probably see at night the fires of Bethlehem, the Hinnom stream coming from the west, heading down towards the Dead Sea, where those streams converge, they run to a place that's called En Gedi, which is where David hid from King Saul. One of the places that we travel to when we're in Israel, we actually go to the caves where David and his men hid. This is a response to the cry. This is what God's people were feeling in their heart. It's like, Lord, where are you? What's going on here? And then add in all the things that happened to them. And think about it. And if you just take it from the Exodus, where were they? Egypt. What were they? 
slaves. What happened? They got delivered. Where did they go? The wilderness. What happened in the wilderness? They wandered. What happened when they got to the border of the wilderness in Canaan? They looked in, didn't want to go because they saw giants. When they got into the land of Canaan, what did they do? They fought wars for a thousand years. And they'd have a good king and a bad king. And the story of the book of Judges is everyone did that which is right in their own eyes. And they just went round and round and round and round again. And they'd do good for a while and then they'd worship false gods. Why? Because they would not turn to Messiah. They kept trying to figure it out on their own. They kept trying to get there another way. And the whole time, God's sending them a message to the prophets. This is who I am. This is what I want you to do. This is what you have to do to know me. And they're going, well, what happened? Because if you run it out through history, what happens? You get to the time of Jesus. After the time of Jesus, the Roman emperor-to-be, Titus, Flavius Titus, ransacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple. There's not been a temple since AD 70. So no place to offer sacrifice, no way to fulfill your obligations. Now they do it in their hearts. There's no temple. There's no temple mount. There's no nothing. And God scatters them to the four corners of the earth. And they begin to prosper in those foreign countries. Then what happens? They're nearly wiped out in the Holocaust. It's believed that about 85% of every Jew that was on the face of the earth died in the Holocaust. 80%, 85% by some accounts. And then at the end of the Second World War, May 14, 1948, by a UN mandate, Balfour proclamation is put out called the Palestinian Mandate. The Jewish people get a homeland. They go to that homeland in mass. They travel from all over the world. Less than two million of them in total. What happens on May 15th, 1948? Seven Arab nations, all armed with Soviet weaponry, attack that fledgling nation that has no standing army. Men, women, and children take up arms, including shovels and rakes and a lot of other things. And this tiny little nation actually defeats the armies of the Arab world. Miraculously. They have been fighting since that day to this day. So if they ever figure out who actually assassinated Fakhrazadi in Iran, and if it was Israel, there will likely be another war, or at least a retaliation. And here's this little tiny people. Now I want you to see this verse 16, that in spite of all that stuff, it makes no sense that the Jewish people still exist on the face of this earth. They're the most universally despised people on the planet. 
Not by me, not by us, not by most of Christendom, but by the whole rest of the world. Verse 16, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now, can you imagine the prophet Isaiah writing that down, having zero idea that the Carthaginians and the Medes would invent crucifixions, the Romans would improve upon it, and one of the things that would happen is your hands would be nailed to a cross. Look what it says. These are mind-bogglingly precise pieces of information. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before, before me. Your sons shall make haste, your destroyers, and those you lay waste shall go away from you. Look at what happens in Israel today. They are surrounded. We traveled to a place called the Valley of Oz. Oz 77. It's a place that during the 76 war, a tank column of some 10,000 tanks attacks Israel. Israel at the time had less than 1,000 tanks, so they were 10 to 1 outgunned. The tanks that were attacking them were modern Russian tanks. The tanks that Israel had were old British tanks, centurions. And guess who wins? Israel. Inexplicable. They'll go away from you. Lift up your eyes and look around you and see. I'll gather together and come to you as I live, says the Lord. And you shall surely clothe yourself with them as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. One of the things in a Jewish wedding is they actually bind pieces of the home, little tidbits of things, flowers and things like that, to the, to the wedding gown. This is a picture. It's like all these nations that surround you that have been trying to destroy you for your waste place and your desolate places and the land of your destruction. When the Jewish people returned in 1948 to what is called Zion, now the nation of Israel, it was a swamp or a desert, one of those two things. It's not like it is today. It was completely desolate. The only money that they have was the money they brought with them. No farmlands, no fruit trees. It isn't like you see it today. You drive through the Hula Valley and you see mangoes and bananas and orange groves and every manner of fruit and vegetable. You can't even, it's, it's almost hard to imagine. It wasn't like that. We'll even now be too small for the inhabitants. To those who swallowed you up, they'll be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others. Check that one out. In other words, you're nearly going to be obliterated. You're going to come back into the land, but the land that you're going to come back into is going to be too small. What's the biggest problem in Israel today? It's land. That's why the UN has been trumpeting this land for peace deal for the last 50 years. That's why you still hear terms like the occupied territories, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights. That's why you hear those things. The world says that's occupied territory. God says that's actually his land. He gave it to the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people are occupying a very tiny sliver of land. It's going to be too small for them. 
those that messed with them are going to be the ones that will pay the price for it. I will say to your ears, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. And then you'll say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children, I'm desolate. A captive, wandering to and fro, and brought these up. There I was left alone. These, where were they? The miracle that Israel exists in this world today is staggering. The real Silicon Valley of the world is actually in Netanya in Israel. Google has moved there. Apple has moved there. You look at what's going on in Israel today, it's mind-boggling that the Lord has kept these promises inscribed on his hands and the fact that he died on the cross. He died for his own people, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Jesus still has the Jewish people inscribed on his hands. He's making good on these things. That regathering is mind-boggling. When you travel to Israel, when we go there, our trip has been moved once again to November so that we can get away from the COVID things for 2021. But when you travel there, one of the things that strikes you is you can drive from one side. If you start at the Mediterranean coast, if you're in Tel Aviv or Netanya, Netanya, you can drive to Jordan in two hours. That's all the way across the whole country. That's like here to San Diego. If you start at the north end, you're in Lebanon. If you drive to the south end, which will only take you six hours from the north end, when you get to the south end, in 10 minutes, you can be in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, or Israel. It's a tiny land. The Bible says it will eventually be too small for them. It won't hold them. Their history, though, is not small. As far as the Bible is concerned and as far far as archaeology is concerned, it's about 5,800 years, give or take a little bit. That's why when people begin to talk about these things in the Middle East and this myopic thing that just deals with this little tiny nation like it's, it's had this privileged place. Uh, it has a privileged place today because God put his hand on them and said, I have not forsaken you. And what you see, I believe, is a direct result of the hand of the living God being on his people because he said he would keep his hand on his people. It is mind-boggling what's going on in Israel today. Were it not for Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I, I'm, I don't know that the Jewish people survived the Second World War. Interesting little piece of history for you. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu keeps on his desk, he's got a little box, and on his desk is a signet ring. It actually belongs to the nation Israel. It's loaned to him. Um, by the Department of Israel Antiquities. But that signet ring is actually his name first and last. It is a royal seal from about the time of King David, and it says Netanyahu ben Joash, Benjamin. And that ring has been dated to 2,800 years or so. So when people say, no, it belongs to the Palestinians. 
Well, there were no Palestinian people. They're basically a conglomeration. If you want to know the truth of the history there, the Romans actually called the people living there Palestinians because they dwelled in Palestine. But they're not a people group. They don't have a language. They speak some form of Arabic. There there isn't a Palestinian people. There are people who are now called Palestinians because the land was called Palestine by the Romans, but that was the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a long time before it was called Palestine. And so from the Jewish people's perspective, they were building Jerusalem. They were building this place that, that is in this book that we have in our hands over 3,000 years ago. You see, when Benjamin Netanyahu's father died, he died, he was over 100. He had lived through the pogroms of Russia. He had lived through the Holocaust. He had lived through the Ottoman Empire and the First World War. And he watched the Jewish people get nearly wiped out in each one of those scenarios. When Muhammad came and ultimately almost 600 years later, you end up with all these things going on to where now when you go to Jerusalem, you see these Ottoman walls that happened in the 1500s or so. You would think that there's no way the Jewish people are surviving that. It's just not going to happen. And yet your Bible says God has not forsaken them. And he's going to draw them back. They're a nation in that sense reborn. It's mind-boggling. One day, Russia and its allies are going to rise up. They're going to come against Israel. You can read that in Ezekiel chapter 38, first six verses. You see Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Tagarma, Ethiopia, Persia, all these nations that surround Israel. They're not going to be victorious either. You would think they would, especially aided by Russia. Russia has the world's largest nuclear deterrent force. They have more nuclear weapons than we do. And we got way too many. They're not going to take out Israel either. You know, there's a reason that Iran calls Israel a one-bomb country, and there's a reason that Iran is trying to get nuclear weapons. Israel is so small that a hydrogen bomb, one hydrogen bomb, placed someplace between Jerusalem and Haifa would take out the entire country. That's how precarious the Jewish people's existence is in this world, and yet the Bible says God has not forsaken the Jewish people. And if you want proof, all you've got to do is go there. Like, there's no way these people should exist. Thus says the Lord God, verse 22, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set my standard against the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. The kings shall be your foster fathers, the queens, your nursing mothers, And they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet, the dust of whose feet? 
Jacob, Israel. The whole world, eventually. I happen to believe that that refers to a time that's still yet future. We call it the second coming of the Lord. And then you will know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Who? Messiah. Jesus. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. These are mind-bogglingly strong promises by the king of heaven over the protection of the Jewish people. Those who contend with Israel contend with God himself. Very plainly taught in scripture. I will save your children. God's been doing that now since the nation was birthed. He continues to save the Jewish people. And I will feed those who oppress you in their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as sweet wine. It's interesting that the enemies of Israel don't get along with each other. They actually, when they're not busy picking on Israel, they have a tendency to fight with each other. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, some of these things lie in their fullest extremity, still in the future. But God has his hand on national Israel. He has promised Messiah will save them, just like he saves everyone today. That that light that's gone out to your heart, to my heart, if you're here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus personally, you have believed on the light of the world. Amen? That's one of his names. So the light has come into your life and you are saved as a child of God. That same thing the Apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 11 is going to happen to national Israel. One day all Israel will be saved. And God has his hand on that little tiny nation. That's why when people say, well, you know, we just, I don't really care what happens in Israel. You better happen. You just read it. God contends with those who contend with the nation Israel. You are literally fighting against God when you fight against Israel. Now you may say, well, that's, that's crazy. No, the Bible says it. God says it. It's not Jeff saying it. The Bible says it, and I believe what it says. I believe there's only one Savior. There's one Lord, and he's Lord over all, and that he loves the Jewish people, and he is going to save that nation in mass one day. I believe the stage is being set. You can read Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 if you want a little reading assignment for the week and see what that very last battle will look like, which hasn't started yet. Verse 1, there's a small chapter here, chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors... 
Is it to whom I have sold you for your iniquities have sold your, you for your iniquities have sold yourselves? For your transgressions, your mother has put you away. Another incredible picture of the Lord Jesus. God's talking directly now to Israel. He's declaring that the nation was divorced, put away because of their transgressions. They worshiped other gods. But that wasn't going to stop Jesus from coming. They had worshipped Baal. They had worshipped Molech. They had worshipped Ashtaroth. When they were in Egypt, no doubt they had worshipped Ra, the sun god. Amun. Nefertiti. Osiris. Every place they went, they always kind of got their eyes off onto the world. But that didn't get God's eyes off of them. And this should be an encouragement to you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God's eyes know where his kids are all the time. Knows what you're going through. He knows how this insane pandemic has affected you, affected your business, affected your family. The same God that loves the Jewish people loves you. His eyes are on you. And so a picture of Messiah follows. You see, you have the statement of what they were doing. They weren't following the Lord, and neither was I when I found Jesus. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem or that I have no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make rivers in a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water and die of thirst. You remember what happened to the Nile? Turned it to blood. God's got his hand on his people. And in the same way, he has a way to get the world's attention. And basically, God is saying, I called, but you didn't answer. Nobody picked up the phone. Instead, the Pharisees picked on Jesus. Ultimately, had him put to death. And he's saying, look, I, I, I have power. Do you not believe that I have power to deliver? I clothed the heavens with blackness. He goes back to who he is as creator. He says, when you look up in the, in the sky, you see, we didn't know this initially. We look up, it looks like there's a lot of stars up there and not much space. There's actually way more space than there are stars. So much so now that the current theory of the universe is that a vast majority of the universe is made up of dark matter. It's a way to balance out all the gravitational forces and all the stuff that we can't see out there. God's saying, look, I, I clothe the heavens in blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who's weary awakens me in the morning, by the morning, and he awakens my ear, for the ear is as learned. And he says something strange in verse 5. A little bit of help from the original Hebrew here would be really good. For the Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Speaking of the Messiah, 
Messiah would allow himself to become a douloi, a bond slave. The opening of the year wasn't that, you know, he stuck his finger in there, hey, you got a little wax in there or something. The opening of the year was a sign of, of, a, of a master taking his slave to the doorpost of his home and taking an awl and driving a hole through his ear and then putting a ring on there. Jesus was that man. He did it willingly. He came as a servant. He said, I willingly give my life to you. Father, I'm going to go all the way to the cross. I'm not going to pull back. I'm not going to shirk from what lays ahead of me. That's why Jesus said in John 5, I come to do my, not my own will, but to the, do the will of him who sent me, right? That's what Isaiah is referring to. The Lord God has opened Messiah's ear. He pierced it. And of course, it's a picture of the crucifixion as well. But this is what would happen. Back in that day and time, if, if you were a bond slave, a douloi, you gave up your rights for six years. The seventh year, you could go free. But if you had children, those children belonged to your master. They didn't belong to you. Neither did your wife. And so Jesus said, look, I'll pay everything. I'll give my life 100% of it. I don't care what I get in return. I'll give up everything. It's an incredible picture of Messiah. Go ahead. I willingly give my life. And so it says, and you can see it now in its continuing thought, I gave my back to those who struck me. What happened to Jesus? He gave his life a ransom for us. As Isaiah has already said, and as we're going to see in great detail in 52 and 53, he gave his back. The Romans didn't, you know, they weren't just super powerful. They overpowered the disciples and they got Jesus and you know, finally militarily we, just, we got him. No, Jesus gave himself up as a bond slave for my sin. He died in my place. He took my place. He was pierced so I didn't have to be pierced. And so scripture says, Isaiah writes, I gave my back to those who struck me. Look, if Jesus didn't want to be whipped, he didn't have to be whipped. Just like he could have turned the stones to bread when he was tempted by Satan, but he didn't. Because it would have been sin to him. And he died sinless. Perfect. My cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. Do you remember what happened to Jesus? They put a bag over his head and they punched him in the face and they had the unmitigated gall to say, if you're the son of God, tell us who punched you. You don't think Jesus could have got that bag off his head? You don't think he couldn't have instantaneously made his face turn into titanium plate so that when that guy punched him, he just brought back a stump? He could have. But he didn't. He gave his face. He allowed himself to be beaten. This is a picture of what happened on the night that Jesus was killed. And Isaiah told us what was going to happen before it happened. 
and we're going to see 44 other pieces of precise information in the next couple of chapters. I didn't hide. I let them beat me. I did it willingly. I didn't pull back. Not that I'm suggesting that you watch pugilism, but if you've ever watched MMA or boxing or any type of pugilistic sport, you don't see people just standing there, okay, go ahead and punch me in the face. No, they will do anything and everything to keep from being struck, and yet Jesus didn't do a thing to keep from getting struck. As a matter of fact, he allowed a human being that he created to put a bag over his head and then punch him, even though he knew it was coming. I gave my back to the smiters. You don't think that Jesus could have kept from being spit on? One of the things you have to kind of deal with when you're in the Middle East is actually a cultural thing. If you insult somebody, you're in the middle of making a deal. And, you know, you grind them down for, you know, you're just one of those people that has to get the best price. And they give you the best price you're asking for, and you don't take the item. You better put on your little face shield you've been wearing for COVID because they're likely to spit on you. That was a cultural thing. So like if you were in disdain for someone, there's two things that you could do. And in fact, the Jewish people used to practice, if you were to divorce your wife, you took your shoe off and slapped her with it. The other thing is you spit on them. The Bible says Jesus let himself be spit on. He didn't have to. Verse 7, for the Lord God will help me, and therefore I will not be disgraced. You see, the world saw Jesus. Do you remember what they said to him on the cross? If you're the Son of God, you take yourself down from there. In fact, they wagged their tongues at him. They walked by and go, some Messiah this is. They'd all heard the story. Remember what was above him? On the titulus, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. He actually was the King of the Jews. And he was Yehoshua, our God who is salvation. And he was Christos, Messiah. You see, that sign was actually truth. And there they're reading it, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And it was true. Pilate actually said to Jesus, behold the man. No, behold the Son of God. Yeah, he was a man. But he was a God-man. And therefore, and this is so beautiful, and again, there's a cultural reference here. My face is set like flint, and I know that I'll not be ashamed. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, this is a picture of his razor-sharp focus, and this is a thing that we now actually have a better understanding of in our modern day and time. If you were taken to, to strike flint or more specifically obsidian, which the word that's translated here could have been volcanic glass, volcanic glass 
is so sharp that, that it can be as little as three nanometers on its edge when it's cleaved. It is, it is over a hundred times sharper than the sharpest steel blade. It is so precise and so focused that even today it can be used for surgical techniques that require a microscopic cut. It is so fine that it can actually go between cells. Jesus was so precisely focused on going to Jerusalem and doing the will of his father that there was no other focus. It was down to the final 10 or so molecules wide. Less than 30 atoms, think about it. Three nanometers, that's 30 atoms wide. That's how focused Jesus was. He wasn't looking over here. He wasn't looking over here. He wasn't looking here or here or here. He was focused like flint. Cleaved to a razor's edge. He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. No one can contend with Jesus. Nobody. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? No one. Ultimately, there is an adversary. He's no match for Jesus. Let him come near to me. Surely the Lord my God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a, a, like a garment. A moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And look, all of you who kindle a fire and circle it with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and the sparks you have kindled and this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down and be tormented. It's basically saying you either believe or you walk in torment. It's Jesus or nothing. It's the king of kings or there is no king that's worthy. I don't know how a Jewish person can read these words and especially what comes in the next several chapters and not see Jesus. I just, I honestly don't. It's that clear. And I pray when you look at these passages, because Israel in the last days, it's clear. I mean, you just look at what's going on. It's like, yep, that's exactly what the Bible says. When you look at chapter 50 and all this that's just been said, it's like, look, I, I, I get it. So if we get it, we should believe in him. We should say yes and amen. And so I pray if you're here tonight, you don't know the Lord. Tonight, say yes and amen. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you want proof why you should do that, look at Israel. Do you want an understanding of how much God loves you? Look at how long he's suffered with the nation of Israel. And he still loves them. And he's suffering with you too. And with me. And he loves us dearly. So let's love him back. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in prayer.
If you need prayer tonight, we've got some guys back in the back for prayer. If you don't know the Lord, they'd be happy to share the gospel with you and lead you in that simple sinner's prayer. Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. We realize, Lord, I realize that I'm unworthy, undeserving, and yet, Lord, you've overflowed us with your everlasting love. And Lord, we pray for any tonight or those watching online or those that might watch this later. Lord Jesus, you came so that the world through you might be saved. And Lord, we thank you for those of us who know you. We thank you that we have chosen you already and that fruit is already abounding in our lives. We thank you for the blood that's redeemed us, for the price that was paid. And we pray, God, that you would move mightily in our midst. And as we look forward to living our lives with purpose for you, would you use us, Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. And we ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.